Hello, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can support us. You just need to click on the link and become an Acast supporter. It's a one-off donation. You can give as much or as little as you like, and uh, there's no commitment. But it certainly helps us to keep producing these podcasts. So thank you very much. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ideas in writing. Hello, I'm Phil Holden and uh, welcome, well, first of all, welcome to 2022 and welcome to Ideas in Writing. It's that podcast where we talk to creative people about words or at least uh, the ideas represented by those words, funny ones, sad ones, strange ones. Uh, the guests bring along a word and so do I. At least that's the theory. As before, I completely forgot the premise of the show, so I didn't ask Robin for his word at any point in the evening. Uh, so for reasons that will, I hope, become obvious as you listen, I've decided to call this episode Rickmansworth Nitwit, uh, which I hope Robin doesn't take personally. Uh, so after university, Robin Ince uh, started out in entertainment, like many at the Edinburgh Fringe and on the stand-up circuit. Uh, he explains how he began to use science in his comedy material and went on to his annual 12 Lessons and Carols, originally for atheists. Of course, uh, Robin is best known for his kind of double act with Professor Brian Cox on The Infinite Monkey Cage. Note to the BBC, commission more, pay them more. Uh, Robin is a committed bibliophile and we were something like 102 or 108, we couldn't remember, on his 100 bookshop tour. Uh, but he does so much more than The Infinite Monkey Cage, most of it available through his Cosmic Shambles network, which is uh, linked in the, uh, the details for this podcast. And you can check out any gigs on his website, robinins.com. Again, there's a link uh, below. But this was uh, a great live event at the Oast Theatre in Tunbridge, the first one we properly recorded as part of the uh, podcast, with, as you know, Robin Ince, talking about his great new book, The Importance of Being Interested. 
Uh, to be honest, this recording is hardly edited at all. You get the feel of the event, although I have to say the audience was a lot louder than this recording suggests uh, because we didn't really have a, a live mic pointing at them and that's a note to self for the future. Um, there were so many references to people and books and even comedy shows and movies. Uh, too many to relate here, so reading the book will definitely help you. Uh, we did get to talk about angels, uh, white feathers, uh, time, time, I think time travel, or maybe we didn't, maybe I imagined that, maybe that was in a parallel universe. We talked about the goodies, astronauts, aliens, uh, myoclonic jerks, uh, why he left his mother's funeral a little bit early. Um, uh, also, we had a, a problem with the roving mic, so you won't hear the audience questions, I'm afraid, uh, which included uh, asking Robin if he would have liked to have been a scientist, um, if he'd ever do a PhD, uh, whether humans are responsible enough to colonise another planet, and telepathy. So here's our live special uh, with Robin Ince, and we start near Rickman's way. I was brought up near Rickmansworth. Right. And Val Dunican lived there, so that was one of the, that used to be our pinnacle. Then Andrew Ridgely opened <laughs> a wine bar there, so right. that was the pinnacle. But the true pinnacle, of course, of Rickmansworth is, for anyone who's a Douglas Adams fan, is of course that it starts with a girl in a cafe in Rickmansworth. Oh. So that was, and that to me is still why uh, Rickmansworth is iconic. Um, the, uh, this is, I just want to show you this before we get started because <laughs> I, I was going, I was looking in the bookshop and I, I never stop buying books, I love books. And this is uh, Doc 2 Annual 1976, so I've just bought. Um, and I bought this not because uh, it's Doc 2 Annual, I bought it just as one bit of marginalia in the whole book. And just written there in pencil, it just says, Tracy is a silly little nitwit. <laughs> that's it. And that's why I bought the book. So and obviously, um, it's Tom Baker as well. Yeah. So, Tracy, if you're out there. Um, so, welcome. Welcome. Uh, my name is Philip Holden, and I run Mr. Books in uh, Tunbridge. Some of you will know that we also record a podcast, and uh, we've had some pretty good guests on there. And, and, uh, but the, 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 um, the first kind of live face-to-face -face one uh, that we did, which we set, uh, put out uh, a few weeks back, was with David Barry, who's in the audience uh, now, and uh, so it's well worth listening to. And this is the first proper live one that we've done, and this is being recorded, okay, so, you know, feel free to swear. <laughs> um, um, but what I would like you to do, just, uh, just for Alaric there up in the box, is just to practice applauding, okay? So if I could get you all to applaud now. That's great. That was a beautiful level. Of, that took me straight back to uh, the Anglia TV region. That was exactly the same level you would get for the quiz of the week. Yeah. That was, that was <laughs> a perfect, you know, yes. just enough to excite yeah. Nicholas Parsons, but not too yeah. much. So we'll cut that into after my introduction, okay? We, um, we hope to have some questions at the end. We're going to maybe uh, spend about an hour here, mostly, obviously, Robin talking. And uh, we hope for some questions at the end from you. Uh, if we don't have time for questions, then um, just take it as read that the answer is we have no knowledge of that party. And, um, <laughs> and in any case, we followed all the rules. 
One of my favourite questions was, um, I interviewed Justin Belbonell, who some of you might know, uh, discovered pulsars, and uh, a, a remarkable scientist, and, uh, but she didn't win the Nobel Prize for uh, um, discovering pulsars, that went to her supervisors. And I was talking to her once, and I said, you know, a lot, a lot of people kind of talk about the fact that you, you didn't win the Nobel Prize, and you know, does that ever kind of annoy you? And she said, no, you know, and I'm, I was quite happy I didn't win the Nobel Prize, because I was very young, and, uh, and if you win the Nobel Prize, then they stop giving you prizes after that. Whereas, you know, I still get prizes, you know, sometimes even once a month, and you get a great meal often with them as well. <laughs> and I love that. Kind of and then I said, what about when, when the, the actual Nobel Prize went for the discovery of pulsars? Were you at the press conference? She said, yes. I said, what did you get asked by the press? She said, nothing. I said, you're the woman who discovered pulsars. And she said, to be honest, there was one question. Uh, and I said, who was it? She said, the sun. So what did the son ask? The, the son's only question was, are you taller than Princess Margaret? <laughs> Which is what an amazing thing yeah. to think, yeah. you know, to be in the, and, and go, well, I wonder what our, what do our readers really want to know about the woman who discovered pulsars? The height disparity between her and the Queen's sister, I would imagine, will be urgent in their <laughs> minds. Yeah. And was she? Uh, do you know what? I didn't find out. So oh, okay. it's one of those great unanswered questions. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. Yeah. There's probably a thesis in that. Um, so, uh, let's, let's start. Bear in mind, it's still being recorded. It's going to take more than an hour, isn't it? Because I've, think, I've well, been interrupting possibly. your introduction quite a lot. And yeah. I've seen how many notes you've got. So, so you uh, know what? This is like preparing for the worst tutorial. It is awful. Okay. C can we cut out the bit where he says it is awful? Because people might yeah, read into that. You know, and there's, a, there's still a couple of weeks of Christmas sales. So I want to be careful on some of these <laughs> things. Um, okay, I just wanted to say something about the chapter headings, okay? Skepticism in science, God, time travel, the size of the universe, space exploration, aliens, evolution and creationism, how the brain works, what is reality, death, imagination, and the end of the universe. Did you ever worry about your lack of ambition? Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you what, it was, and that's only half the chapters that originally I had in my oh, mind really? as well. That, that book at one point was 250,000 words, which it turned out was considerably longer than the publisher had been expecting. And, uh, but the trouble was, when they sent me the email about how long they hoped the book would be, they put that in the second line. And I never read the second <laughs> line of an email, otherwise I would get nothing done. So, uh, so I did manage to cut it down to 130,000, but it is, it's, it's only now that I, because someone the other day put their hand up when I, I think I was in, in Hexham, and they said, I've read the book now, and I'd just like to say, could you put fewer things in the next one? Because <laughs> I've had to make a list of all, like, lo like all the films that I reference and, and yeah. lots of the kind of books that I reference. And that's what I really hope, because there's a, a line that I think is still in the book, I don't think I cut it out, which is about why Carl Sagan, uh, when he was asked, you know, why do you want to talk about science and why do you want to you know, talk about the, to, to the, the world? And he said, well, when you're in love, you want to tell the whole world. And I think, you know, a lot of the stuff that I've worked on, to me, is the equivalent of, at least for my generation or our generation, the mixtape. There's like, mm -hmm. you find lots of fascinating things and you think, oh man, the world's so much better if everyone knows about this brilliant human yeah. being and this magnificent idea about the stars. And so that all the time I was, I was just thinking, right, oh, that's such a great idea and that's such a beautiful thing about chimpanzees that Jane Goodall discovered. And that's what I hope is. I hope it's a kind of, you know, it, it's a bit like Infinite Monkey Cage. With Infinite Monkey Cage, we, we never want to create a module that basically goes, this week we're talking about black holes and then give people here, it's a half an hour on black holes. You can now go to the pub and talk to people about black holes as if you know about them. What we always wanted to do was talk about a subject with a level of excitement and curiosity that would mean that with luck, some of the audience will go, I want to know more about that. 
I'm going to go and buy a book, I'm going to buy a telescope, I'm going to go, and, you know, whatever it is. And I think I have the same ambition with this book, is that I, I hope it's an introduction for some people to ideas they might not have heard about before, and that they'll go, yeah, I think I want to go a little bit further into that. Mm. Um, but you didn't start off studying science, did you? I mean, you weren't a science person. No, and I think that's why I can write this book in one way. One of the, the things that uh, makes me happy is that quite often in some of the shows that I've done, and in fact now the reaction to the book, is sometimes I get scientists coming up to me and going, ah, thank you, you've reminded me why I started doing this. Because right. of course once you're in a world, you know, a lot of people, you start off with such excitement and then you've been in the job for 20 years and you can lose sight of why you know, you do, and, and so I think I'm allowed to be a cheerleader. I'm allowed to sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm allowed to, I'm allowed to be overly excited in a way that sometimes scientists don't feel they can be overly excited publicly mm. about these ideas. And and what happened to me, I think, is very similar to now having done 108 other events about this book in the last couple of months. It's like I've had a lot of conversations with people, and a lot of people have said they have the same thing as me, which is they were kids who loved science. And they loved going for nature walks and they loved, you know, looking at caterpillars and all of those things that we did when we were at school. And then at the age of about 12 or 13, science education would change and science education would become numbers on a chalkboard, sometimes with symbols attached to them. And previously, science, I think up to at least the age of 13, is kind of it's there and it's there and it's there. And then it becomes something that seems abstract. And at, it's at that point that I think a lot of people go, oh, I don't have a science mind. Oh, this isn't meant for me. And from that point on, some people will never return from there. Yeah. And it's a battle that teachers have all the time. You know, it's not so many great science teachers who wish that they want to teach the stories. They want to teach, you know, th th sometimes the transcendent moments, which are the starting point of science. But they're always being tested the whole time. They're always, you know, being inspected. Have you made sure they've memorized this equation? And it's like, well, I don't want them just to memorize equations. I want people to understand the excitement behind the equations. And that's a bit that I think often gets lost lost in the education system. Are you experiencing that now with your son? He's in secondary school, isn't yeah. he? Yeah. So yeah, he's, he, at the moment I think he's pretty fine on, on that stuff, but I can imagine the, there will be a battle. I mean, he's got very good teachers, fortunately. The secondary school he's at is, mm. is, is, is really good. Well, and you have to say that because it's being recorded. Yeah, well, yeah. no, it's, it's great. <laughs> it's where they filmed Son of Rambo. Have you ever seen Son of yes. Rambo? Yeah, which is a beautiful, if you've not seen it, it's a beautiful film about <laughs> two kids who get a video camera and decide to try and make their sequel to Rambo, right? And, uh, and that's, that's the school that he goes to. It's, oh it's like this okay. great big pile of a place. And, 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 and I do, I, I genuinely, I feel so bad for that. The teachers work so hard and battle, and there's far, you know, the amount of criticism, it's like a lot of people in that, you know, those kind of positions. The amount of criticism they face and the amount of battles that they have to... I mean, I used to... When I do events sometimes for teachers, and I think I need to get a bit of energy in the room, all you need to do is just kind of throw the word gove out there. <laughs> and it would just... There will be an vibrant oh, some explosion teachers, of... some teachers you know, and it yeah. is, And unfortunately, we have... So many people in politics are not curious and interested and interesting people. And so, first of all, they're the wrong people to try and design a curriculum. And, 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 and secondly, we have far too much of a kind of utilitarian view. What, what's this going to be worth to me? What can I turn this lesson into? What, what are they going to take away in terms of a job? The idea of actually turning people into excited, curious and interesting people is not really, you know, what government, especially this government, you know, they would not want people who are curious. You don't want curious people. 
people who were going, oh, we should find out. No, 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 you don't want to know any more about that. Look over there, <laughs> look over there. And, and so that is always the battle in politics, is that, you know, th th one of the things we really need more people to, and it is getting better, I think, in some of the schools I've seen some people doing really good kind of courses on critical thinking. We mm. need much more of that. We, you know, we've seen this during COVID, we've seen this during some of the kind of, some of the rubbish that has been, you know, spewed out by very highly paid journalists who, uh, you know, and people believe it because we don't have enough critical thinking. We don't go, hang on a minute, why is this person, and what are they basing their opinion on? And why, mm. is, why is Lawrence Fox on my television apart from when he's on Lewis? I'm 52 <laughs> years old. I'm 52 years old and I've earned the right to enjoy an Oxford detective thriller at one o'clock in the morning, and now I can't because of Lawrence Fox's stupid face has become <laughs> attached to all of its ridiculous things, <laughs> and he basically looks like a pencil sketch done of a penis by H.P. Lovecraft. <laughs> This is going out, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I've never told him that. Yeah. I need to. Yeah, I... I, I Furiates me. Minimal editing, to be honest. Um, <laughs> so, so, um... Because uh, uh, let's 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 rewind a bit. Because let's go back. Let's 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 pretend the pencil doodle by H.P. Lovecraft yeah. of a penis never happened. Let's okay. go back. Let's go we'll back. We'll just hold that image for a moment. Yeah. Lawrence Fox is a little nitwit. I'm going to put that <laughs> in my annual. Yeah, write it in. Write it, write it in for the generations yeah. of the future. Um, but you, but like, tell me about your your your. Uh, as I say, you didn't you didn't do uh, science particularly. You went and did an arts degree at uh, yeah. Royal Holloway. Yeah, one of your fellow students is yeah. here. Um, Fiona, there. Um, <laughs> um, uh, and, and then went into stand up. Yeah. That's what I, I loved stand up, and I was because that was my biggest love. It was the thing that when I was 10 years old, Rick Mayle started turning up on television, and Alexis, and I'd already loved things like the goodies in the past and all of those, but that was, that was my number one love. Was, mm. was, and, and so I went into stand up. Then I hit that point of I, d I didn't really know what I was doing with stand up. And that's when that's one of the times that science started coming back to me. I think was the, f the fact that I was thinking about, you know, what can you do with stand-up? Because there's a great line that I've used many times. George Carlin, the, br the brilliant uh, American comic, he used to say that, that stand-up is a very low art, but it's a very potent art. So you can go on, and, and you know, some of my favourite stand-up, you know, whether it, there's, there's there's so many, you know, Hannah Gadsby and Josie Long and Bridget Christie and Stuart Lee and all of those people where they really do turn it into an incredibly potent art where you haven't just had fun for an hour or two hours. You've taken away, things have stuck to you, ideas have stuck to you. Mm. And, and, you know, sometimes, you know, something like Hannah Gadsby's, you know, Nanette, um, it is, you do feel changed after seeing it. She, she uses it so perfectly. And, and so anyway, but years before all that, you know, I started thinking, what do I, I'm just doing jokes about things. And why don't I do, you know, what, what's, what the, the passions? And, and more and more, I've really got into science again. And I thought, I wonder if I can turn it into jokes as well. And initially, it was the easy thing was kind of doing, so I would make fun of pseudoscience. And then I was like, well, that's quite an easy, that's quite low-hanging fruit. Can I somehow make jokes out of wave-particle duality and the event horizon and what yeah. happens when you cross it in black holes or evolutionary biology in the work of Charles Darwin, which was in a much, that's much higher hanging fruit, it turns out, yeah. and sometimes unreachable. Because sometimes you start, like you think, I'm going to write some jokes about quantum mechanics, and then you realise the setup is two and a half hours long. And that's too long before a punchline. You mm. need a punchline a lot yeah. earlier than two and a half hours. Although, you know. to be fair, in a parallel universe, you get there a lot quicker. Oh, yeah, exactly. Well, and some of them are a lot slower as well. The yeah, trouble is, true, yeah. you don't always have the choice which kind of <laughs> parallel universe you're going to 
end up in, right? Yeah, that's or true. You might think so, but I, I personally think in a deterministic universe, you know, free will's an illusion. So let's let's not go down that. And, but and it's a great thing. If yes, yeah, sorry. <laughs> so in any case, it just, think, it just reminded me of, of uh, it must be in one of the goodies uh, books where they, uh, they one of the uh, pieces they did was, Is God an English Astronaut? Yeah. Do you oh, remember that? It's a classic. They're, they're spoofs on Eric von Daniken's work. Yeah. I used to talk about this, the fact that okay. Eric von Daniken, if you remember, Eric, you must. Oh, you've got none of his books, actually, in your... I have, I have. Oh, so, well, it. go and buy them tomorrow if you've not. <laughs> they're, 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 they're absolute nonsense, but they're still published now. And I, yeah. I, I said this to some scientists who were writing books recently. I said, your mistake is you're writing books about science, which means that in five years' time, they'll be out of date, and you'll either have to reprint them and rewrite them, or they'll just not be available anymore. Be like Eric von Daniken. Write utter shit from the outside that's entirely wrong and it will be entirely wrong in 50 years time mm. so it never has to be reprinted it's as wrong now as it's ever been yeah. ageless i love them I, one of my favorite things it was i think it's in the goodies, goodies book of criminal records and uh, they, they had a great spoof in them there was one which was uh, about hauntings and stuff and it said once there was a man who was very very shy who lived in a castle he would never see anyone and he swore on his deathbed that he would return and hide from people. <laughs> you may scoff, but his ghost has never been seen. And I you know, that's just... Yeah, yeah. I mentioned before, actually, I was chatting yeah. to someone earlier about one of the last gigs I did before lockdown was Tim Brooke Taylor, and I'm just going to say, wh oh, what a great yes. man, and what an absolute... And I, and I feel, you know, and, and when he died, and, you know, taking my COVID, just like, he, what a loss, because he was so sharp and so funny, mm. and such a generous... Graham Garden described him just beautiful three words. He just said, a class act, and he, and he really was. And yeah. we did this lovely event. We did an event which was... Uh, it was the 50th anniversary of the goodies, and so we did an on-stage event. It was there with Tim, Bill, and Graham. And, uh, and one of the things was the audience had voted for their favourite episode of the goodies, and then Tim, Graham, and Bill would watch it with them. And the great thing was they voted for one that all three of them hate. So <laughs> they, had, they then had to sit and go, oh, well, I don't think this one's aged very well at all. It wasn't the one with the giant kitten, was it? No, it wasn't no. the giant kitten one. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> No, I used to love that. I used to love it. But um, so scepticism was kind of a starting point for this, mm. this bit of your career. Tell me about the Merseyside sceptics. Well, the Merseyside sceptics, which is... Uh, it people sounds like, like a band, doesn't yeah, it? It's it is, yeah, it's like, yeah. It's Roger McGough <laughs> and the Loch Ness Monster. Um, <laughs> my favourite, by the way, theory of the Loch Ness Monster I found in the last year is that the Loch Ness Monster is actually the ghost of a dinosaur. Isn't that great? Oh, I yeah. love that as a theory. But, um, yeah, the Merseyside sceptics, the reason that I, I like what they do is I think sometimes in sceptics groups in atheist groups and some of those kind of groups it, we can turn towards mockery very very quickly mm. and we can turn towards scoffing very very quickly and as we found out you know mockery does not work to convince people that they're wrong and the thing about the Merseyside skeptics is that they really they look very deeply into why people believe what they believe and, and what has led them to those beliefs. And, and someone like Michael Marshall, who, who one weekend I rang him up, the weekend before he'd been at a David Icke event that was about 17 hours long, and the next weekend he was doing a Flat Earth conference, right? So it's like a lot for him to... But he, he was telling me, he said, one of the things when you go and see things like the Flat Earth conventions is very often people start their speech and they start with, hi, everyone, thanks for coming down. Uh, it's not been a great week this week. Anyway, and then there, so the first <laughs> thing you see is someone's kind of melancholy. You see that someone, and he said that is so much what leads people, some people anyway, 
towards conspiracy thinking hmm. is and it's such a dangerous place to go and uh, and of course with something like flat earth is you know that can just sound like you know friendly nonsense and, and it is kind of it's impossible the number of times that brian's gone i don't understand how can people believe the earth is flat and i go yet again brian you're you're viewing this from an evidence-based perspective <laughs> and there's a different, you know, why isn't everything just the size of an atom? The moment it gets molecular, everything goes awry. So it's um, <laughs> kind of, he, uh, so trying to explain, but, but of course the danger is with things like flat earth, it's very often you will find people who start to, you, you can't just believe in the flat earth and then trust everything else. Mm. Because already you've, you've got rid of the space race, that's, that's entirely gone. And you've got rid of the nature of shadows somehow as well. <laughs> and, and then it can lead to very, unpleasant places including things like holocaust denial which mm. of course leads on to a lot of other things as well and this is why michael marshall you know that this is th like one of the really great bits of investigation they did was about crank cancer cures because that is something that's really important mm. and it is and there's two cases two particular cases in, in uh, one in liverpool of a, a, a young guy um sean walsh who was a young, young musician and uh, he'd had, I think it was uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma before, and he'd recovered, but he got it again. And of course, he's already been through the pain of the treatment, and he'd started beforehand to read about some of these alternative cures. And of course, because he's, he's gonna look for something alternative, and he goes to these various different places that say they're doing things that are helping to stop his cancer. And of course, it's too late. By the time his family are saying, Sean, I don't think any of this is working. I don't think this is, uh, you've got to go. And of course, by then, when he goes to the hospital, he died, you know? Mm. And, and, there's, and that's what I think is so important is, you know, sometimes with the skeptic movement, we can think, it's all, you know, not that long ago, we used to think the biggest thing that we were against was creationism or intelligent design. And it turns out now, you know, a lot of kind of misinformation is, is, is used by politicians, you know, very publicly and very obviously. And as we've seen also with things like the dealing with the COVID crisis, any, anyone who's read any of the, sometimes the very good, uh, there were a couple of, of Sunday Times reporters who, who wrote, I think it was Failures of State, as far as I remember, mm -hmm. I think is the book about what went wrong. You know, people die if you, you know, you, you're, you're talking about, this is not just a bad political decision. This is people, it's like the beginning of the COVID, um, the beginning of the pandemic, I was talking to people from places like the Crick Institute, and they were saying, you know, the one thing that might come out of this is that at least people will realise sometimes experts are useful. During a pandemic, experts are quite handy. But then, of course, they very quickly started to see the government using the phrase, the science, and they went, oh, okay, we see what's going to go on here now which is this is still going to be cherry-picked and this is going to be played and it's going to be used, you know, and so, so if you are having, if it's not gone well, well, it was the science that did it. And that's when they realised that even something like this can just be spun. So, so th this is what I like about the Merseyside skeptics. And also Haley Stevens, who I mentioned as well, who uh, um, does kind of ghost investigations and stuff from a, from a skeptic position, but originally from a believing position as well. I think you know and she she used to do a podcast with 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 Marsh as well. I just think it's that bit where you go. Some of this stuff is jokey and silly and fun, but underneath it all, it has real importance. Evidence based thinking is a very very important thing. And also we have to, if we are sceptical people, we also have to work out how to get the message across. Like with climate change, you know, I talked to Helen Chersky about climate change, and one of the things is some scientists, I think, still think if I show them the graphs, 
then they're going to believe it's going to be okay. And of course, graphs don't have the emotional punch of the way that someone who's got a YouTube channel, which is very often highly monetized. This is not an altruistic act. You know, they're kind of pseudoscience and they're conspiracy theories. Is that they, you know, you need to have an emotional story. And so that's the, uh, one of the examples I use is from the National Geographic did a, a war against science issue about five or six years ago. And there was a, a young woman there who her area in particular was examining ice cores and seeing the change of the atmosphere uh, and, and the, the the, uh, the using using um, ice cores, so the, the, the um, components of the gas, etc., and um, and she said her dad would not believe that climate change was being greatly exacerbated and sped up by human action. Mm. And she would come back from another expedition and explain again the change in the ice core and things like, you know, the, the how it would match up looking at the levels of CO2 and all this. And he would go, no, but I saw this bloke and he said this thing on the YouTube channel. I heard a guy on American talk radio and he said this. And she would go, but what about this and what about that? And she wasn't getting anywhere. And then one day she suddenly had the brainwave where she went, Dad, isn't this weird? Isn't it weird that you believe all these men that you've never even met you don't trust your own daughter. And that was the bit that suddenly was a shock to him. That was the emotional shock right. where he thought, oh, yeah, that is weird, isn't it? And then that, that was the thing that changed him. And so I think that's one of the things, hopefully some of that chapter deals with trying to find the ways of, of, of persuading people mm. for everyone's good as well. But you kind of come back to that in the book in a way in that, in that uh, you touch on people's need to believe something or need to you know, to discover wonder or, you know, and you must have come across people. Uh, do, pe do people turn up at your gigs that are sceptical? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes they're more sceptical afterwards, which is always a pity. <laughs> and uh, no, I, I, I've had, I mean, it's one of the things, uh, I was chatting with someone earlier on about, I, I used to do a show called Nine Lessons of Carols for Godless People. And that all came out of, uh, in particular, there was a guy called Stephen Green who used to run an organization called Christian Voice. It was a very mm. small organization, but unfortunately it was one that was given platforms by broadcasters like the BBC, which then gave it the illusion that somehow it was the voice of Christianity in the UK, which it was far from that. And, uh, and he was such an unpleasant man, I found um, and uh, do I have to add I found for legal reasons I'm sure <laughs> but it was uh, <laughs> and, I, and I did and I did this this TV show this panel show and he just kept going you want to ban Christmas and I went I don't want to ban I don't know why he keeps saying I want to ban Christmas it's, it's happening again this year because the culture wars are being flamed mm. in every direction yet again we're having these people going of course they're always trying to ban Christmas no one's trying to ban I don't know a single atheist that wants <laughs> to ban Christmas no one's got a problem with Christmas everyone's fine with Christmas some people are against the consumerism of Christmas and that includes lots of religious leaders as well. That might be an element, but no one's banning Christmas. And so I was so angry, and also because my friend Stuart Lee had had such an awful time with Jerry Springer, the opera, in terms of the amount of hate oh, that of he course, got yeah. and all of that. So there's a beautiful shot, actually, of Stephen Green. There was a documentary about him, and he's giving his big kind of highfalutin speech about how evil Jerry Springer, the opera, is. And as he's doing that, a seagull goes overhead, which is clearly, even by seagull standards, incontinent. And it just goes, <laughs> like that. It's like, the, you know, if, if Jackson Pollock sold ice cream, <laughs> this this is how he would sell ice cream. And, um, and, and so I did, and, and what was nice about it, so originally it was called For Godless People because it was a direct reaction about all, all these people going, of course, atheists don't want anyone to have fun. I was like, well, I'm going to, and then we used to sometimes get people who turn up, they bought tickets off eBay not having read the full description. So there were religious people who would turn up and go, oh, we didn't, oh, it's not a Nine Lessons and Carols show like the normal one. Well, we'll sit and watch the first hour and then we'll probably leave. 
And then lots of them would, I'd get letters and stuff saying, well, thank you for I came along thinking it was a religious thing, and then I found out it wasn't. But we had a super time. We thought it, it was going to be lots of people attacking people for being religious, but it wasn't. It was a celebration of scientific ideas and weird experiments and songs. Yeah. And then I called it Nihilist Carols for Godless People for a few years, and then eventually I realised it was now so detached from the events that had happened in whatever it was, 2006, that I changed it from godless to curious. Because I, I wanted to, you know, because for some people they might still have thought that's, that was the main agenda, and yeah. of course it never really was. And so, yeah, that was kind of, why did I start talking about it? I don't know, but I anyway, but, but it was, but <laughs> no, that, that ske sorry, sceptical audiences and stuff yeah. like that. And, and so, you know, and, and I think it's, one of the things I wanted to do with the book as well was I think sometimes science fails, sometimes it can be very dismissive of the mythical and the arcane and the strange. And actually, I think there's a great big overlap you can create, um, I think, you are still allowed to have moments of magnificent and strange wonder, as well as having scientific wonder. You are allowed to have equations in one hand and sometimes a kind of vision in the other. I mean, I, there's a story that I, I can't remember if it's in the book, but I, the, the penultimate gig that I did before uh, the lockdown was on uh, the Isle of Lewis. And uh, it, oh was, yeah. it was beautiful, beautiful places. It's, you know, the outer Hebrides. I was there on the only sunny day in February, so it was magnificent. It was just a joy to be there. And I went to the Stones of Callanish. And I was thinking about time there, because sometimes I think about geological time. You know, you can think of geological time as stacked like that, you know, on top of each other. And then sometimes you can actually feel it. You know, when you're sometimes going for a walk, maybe, maybe I mean, somewhere like Tumbridge has got lots of very historical places here. And also sometimes you might in, the, in you know, in the Kent countryside uh, or, you know, it might be in the ruins of an abbey, whatever it is. Sometimes when you're walking around, you get a sense of the past and you get that kind of sense of, I wonder how many other people walked in the steps that I'm walking now. Yeah. And I stood in the middle of the Stones and I put my hand on the stone um, that's right in the middle there and I suddenly got this really vivid image of all the other people who must have stood there and put the palm of their hand on that rock and you know and I thought of those people some of them in Wellington boots some of them barefoot some of them sandals I thought of the different ships and boats that have seen bobbing out and sea I thought of the different gods that might have been in the sky you know those thousands of years ago and it was a very rich vision it was quite a transcendent moment and I enjoyed that moment, and I can have that moment, and I can also have the beginnings of an understanding of the Einsteinian nature of time. If you see, you, you can have both of those things. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't. The one doesn't have to 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 ruin the other. Alan Moore, who is someone that I interview for every book I do, I'm a huge fan of Alan. I, I love Alan. He's uh, you know Bard of Northampton and Farmer, other things. You watch Men Defend, Death League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and Alan has is a great balancer of scientific ideas he understands so many deep and difficult ideas of physics but he also worships a uh, roman snake sock puppet god called glycon <laughs> and he has found a way of having this beautiful way of creating his own myths and mysteries if anyone else starts worshiping it with him then he can't worship anymore it's his god that he's <laughs> made right and and he is this great balancer of of you know we don't have to erase sometimes our more you know our stranger imagination it's one of the things that I talked about in the chapter about death, which is, um, you know, I realise that's one of the hardest things to deal with for any human being, whatever their situation, with religion or without. But I think there can be a, a real existential moment when you get to believe yourself that this is it. This is the one go you get. Mm. And so I wanted to deal with people who had somehow, sometimes had to confront the worst possibilities of that, including things like the loss of a child, because there's people I know who, are, who don't have a belief in that, but they... they they, and, and then the, the one of the ones that 
illustrations of that bit of balancing the kind of myth and is I, w- I was in an Oxfam and they had loads of books about angels you know those books that, 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 and there was just no- and I was looking at them it's an Oxfam in a lot and I was like oh my goodness and I nearly said a snarky comment and then I thought don't say anything snarky so I just said god you've got loads of books about angels at the moment and oh yeah someone's just donated them almost too many and then I was glad I didn't say anything because then a woman came around with her toddler and she went, oh, no, those books. Oh, I've got loads of those. Oh, probably too many of those books. Um, and then she said about why she's got those books. And it was her brother died when he was still a child. Mm. And she reads those books. And then when she sees a white feather, which is part of the mythology yeah. of those books, she picks it up and she remembers her brother. And she thinks of a story. And I realised during that conversation, she doesn't really believe in all of that angel stuff. She's got a bit of cognitive dissonance there and just enough that means that she now, every time she finds a white feather, creates a connection to the mm. person who's lost. And I think, you know, that, that's no and sometimes we can so quickly kind of just, you know, knock that aside. And I, and I think we have to be careful in really working out why people believe what they believe mm. because sometimes they un- there's nothing cruel in it there's nothing that leads you know I've, it's what i say about religion a lot of time which is you know i have no problem with religion My, the things i'm against are fundamentalism uh bigotry and certainty and there's lots of and, and there's a, a story I didn't put in the book about the fact that for instance a lot of my family are religious and and my mum was religious and uh my mum believed in heaven and uh, I think she believed in heaven for a couple of reasons. I think one of the reasons was that she'd lost her dad when she was very young. And she would really like to have talked to him. She loved him so much. She just thought, you know, so she could have that. And then the other thing was she was in quite a brutal car accident. And I think she would like to have thought that she might get a chance to not have to face some of the physical difficulties and other things she had to face after the accident. So even at my peak atheism, I never felt the need to argue with her about, hey, mom, you do know there's no heaven. Because it didn't, it was there was nothing wrong with it was such a, a benign belief, yeah. and it, and she was always kind and generous as a human being, and uh, and when I remember once when she was she was uh, when she wasn't well at one point and she I think hallucinating a bit as well and she went oh and scientists have proved there's no heaven, I said no they haven't mum they don't deal with that don't worry about it scientists haven't got involved and I told an atheist friend that story and she said. That means you are not a very good atheist then, doesn't <laughs> it? <laughs> and I remember thinking, oh, no, you know, how is not God going to punish me? You know, and that <laughs> is the thing where... So, I th- you know, I wanted to deal with those kind of things as well, yeah. which I imagine there's probably some more hardline kind of people of... of, of we are very... It's, like, it's why I say in the book that thing where I don't like that T-shirt that goes, science doesn't care about your feelings because... Feelings and emotion are the thing that drive our curiosity as well. Yeah, and we must yeah. never pretend that we, any of us can be a truly objective individual. Mm. The thing about the, the chapter on the mind and the brain is, uh, we, I, I can't remember if you kind of say this explicitly, though, but this is this ability of the mind to believe, in inverted commas, contradictory things. And, it, and indeed, for it have to, it, you have to do that. Mm. You have to behave... In other contexts, you have to behave in a Newtonian world, whilst at the same time realising that that's probably not really how things work. Yeah, you know, we are all atoms, and you know, there's a lot we don't know. Yeah, about there's. It. I mean, there's there's at least uh, there's a thing I talk about the fact that in any room there's at least three realities. 
I think I think Karl Popper talks about the, a, a different kind of version of a similar thing, which is you have the reality of your exterior self and what, what we believe each other. But then there's the, the reality of your interior self, which may well be very different in terms of what's actually going on. So even just on a psychological perspective, there are two realities going on yeah. when I'm talking to you and all these things are going on. And uh, then there's also the other level of reality, which is the level of reality of the fact that this is all solid here. And then there's another story where everyone will say, well, actually, all these atoms are, are predominantly empty empty spaces so and and there's a great line I think it was Niels Bohr who once said everything that is real is ultimately made of something that is not real <laughs> when you get down to a certain point and the size and you actually get to subatomic particles and you get to waves of probability and so you're dealing all the time in every room there are at least probably four actually different levels of reality mm. and and then also it just in terms of our brain and the fact that one of my favorite lines of, of uh, Ken Campbell the great autodidact yeah. and, and theatrical impresario Ken Campbell in one of his lectures once said you are just one of the things your brain does and that <laughs> is such a great thing mm. because I think in the, I, I talk about myocyclonic jerks. Now, myocyclonic jerk, if you don't know, is you know when you've just fallen asleep and then your leg goes like that, and you wake up and you go, oh, I just dreamt I walked into a hole, right? Who's had that dream? Yeah. Right, so you've all had right. Now, that's actually not what's happened. That myocyclonic jerk is just your leg going like that, and then your brain goes, uh-oh, I better come up with a backstory. Um, <laughs> yeah. You had a dream and your foot went into a pothole. Oh, thanks very much. He still thinks he's in charge. You know, so that, that alone is a great way of realising that, that yeah. we, we're only part of it. My, uh, my cyclonic? Yeah. Yeah. Mine, as a child, was always that I was in the balcony of the uh, opera house in Manchester and it collapsed underneath me. And that was your... Yeah, I always <laughs> went to that. Because I remember, I don't know why, because I went with my parents to see, I think it was the gondoliers, because they were mad on <laughs> with, with my parents and my nana. Um, and uh, I was astonished how the upper circle was, you know, that vertiginous, terrifying, yeah, yeah. terrifying thing. You're looking at the stage down there, so where, just down where that bit of tape is, and you think, that's, that's steep. You could easily roll down there yeah, and yeah, plummet. That. And that's what I always went back to. But the, but the thing is about the mind, I th the, the chapter on the mind, do you think that's the most personal in a way? Because you, when you start off talking about it, you talk about the sort of chaos of the mind. Mm. And I got the feeling that you thought, yeah, that was, that was a very kind of immediate experience of what the mind is like. You're constantly kind of contradicting yourself and, and uh, questioning yourself and, and asking, is this what I really believe? Is this free will? Those kind of questions. Is that your yeah. experience? I mean, I think it's also, I mean, the book I wrote before was also about kind of, was in particular about the mind. And it's, and it's still a kind of, you know, uh, a thing that I, that bit of the chaos of the mind. It's why that, that chapter was about five times as long initially. Yeah. And even at the beginning of that chapter, I basically make an apology and say, right, you are now going to go, this is, you know, the horse now has no reins and is just galloping off and I'm trying to grab it, but it's going to, and, and then interesting, after I finished writing the book, and I finally finished it about the end of July, because I just wasn't allowed to change it anymore and uh and i had a conversation with someone in august so this is a, p a personal side of it about my mind uh this guy got in contact with me a guy called jamie and said i've been following your work for a long time and i read your blog posts and your twitters and all that kind of thing and um i'd like to have a conversation with you because uh i'm kind of uh, neurodivergence is my speciality i myself actually have asperger's and adhd can i have a chat and uh and so we had this three-hour conversation 
And at the end of it, he said, basically, so you know, everything that you've answered there very strongly points in the direction you're probably ADHD. And that was kind of an interesting thing because that was uh, something that audiences have been saying to me for years is because very often someone will come up to me at the bar and they'll say, right, we made a list and here <laughs> are the 17 stories that you began during the show and did not finish. <laughs> Both my husband and I would like you to finish at least eight of them so we have some sense of closure before we leave the theatre, right? And, uh, and then I said to my wife, I thought, I bet mentioned just that this might, might be fair. I said, just say no, someone just reckons that I'm, you know, I might be ADHD. And uh, I thought, I hope she takes it well. And she took it very well. She went, oh, that would be fantastic, because I've always thought you were bipolar. <laughs> and uh, so, but, I was, uh, but that's why, I mean, I think the, not the next book, but the book after is going to be another book about the mind again, mm. because I think, I think one of the things, it's like lots of the things that I deal with in the book, I hope have some pragmatic use as well in terms of whether it is about death, whether it's about existential, whether it's about the connections that we can create, whether it's about the entanglement of all life. I wanted as much, or whether it's about, you know, one of the things, the reason I deal with the size of the universe in the book was because that's one of the first reactions. When I do shows with Brian, we would get so many tweets. Well, the main tweet we get is always one that just goes, uh, I didn't understand a word of that, but my nine-year-old daughter is currently explaining it to me, right? Which is a lovely <laughs> tweet to get. And then the second one is that thing that I mentioned in the book about the feeling of insignificance. And that bit that when you find out, you start to hear about ideas of the size of the universe and you find out that it's even, you know, so much bigger even than our galaxy, which has 200 billion stars in it or 400 billion stars in it, you know, all of these things, you know, it might be that. And then you, and it is daunting. And again, a bit like you fearing that, that rolling down. It's the same thing in that dream, isn't it? It's like when the whole of the roof is suddenly ripped off and you just see the sky and the sky gets bigger and bigger and bigger and you get smaller and smaller and smaller and you feel that insignificance. So that was another thing where I knew that some people found the, the desire to run away from scientific ideas and scientific curiosity because the level of existential anxiety or cosmological vertigo as it sometimes gets called is so enormous mm. so I don't want to know and then if you spend more time with these ideas you will find the consolation so the thing that I would always say to people about stuff like that is if they say I just cannot believe how small I am and how big the universe is I say you just have to remember that significance is not about size because you know, there are, th th like, everyone in this room is significantly smaller than Jupiter. Argue with that if you wish, but you are. You're significantly <laughs> smaller than Jupiter. And yet, at the same time, everyone in this room, you and me and everyone else, is significantly harder to explain than Jupiter. It's easier to explain a gas giant than it is us, this biological creature, this strange pattern of atoms with the curiosity and imagination and questions and ability to love and ability to make jokes and all of those other things. Mm. And so, you know, th that's, that's one of the, again, I wanted to find in each chapter find something which meant that people might, there's a line, uh, you know, in the last book in particular, there's a, there was a thing when I was writing that, and in particular afterwards, when I was going around talking about some of the different ideas about mental health and stuff in the book, uh, so many people would come up to me with different stories, and some of them would say, I've never said this to anyone, but I never realised that I, I always thought I, w I was the only one. And there's so many people who have that in yeah. so many different ways. And I often have it, I have Rock and Roll Suicide by David Bowie in my head. <laughs> and I have that beautiful line where he just says, oh no, love, you're not alone. And that more and more, and it what that was in my head again when I wrote this book, is what mm. it really does, it might sound pretentious or stupid, or I don't care really, but it really does, it motivates me more and more. The more yeah. I find out how people can feel lost in the universe or lost in their street or lost in their house or whatever it might be, is I think there are ways that, it, and sometimes it can be through big scientific ideas, have within them a different sense of connection as well. Mm. But that that uh, that's, 
question of insignificance, you know, it comes about when you think of the end of the universe, which is the, the final chapter, you know. Mm. Uh, there's a, there's a, a real temptation to think, well, okay, nothing matters, does it? Yeah, it's a funny thing, isn't it, is that when you think of the time scale that we're talking about for the end of the universe, it's like to suddenly go, well, it turns out it's all going to end in a trillion years or something, so what's the point? And that, but it's a weird, yeah. it's a very strange, you know, I mentioned Paul Dirac, the great, you know, physicist Paul Dirac. He totally accepted himself. He believed he was born, he lived, he died. His consciousness was over and done with when his body was no longer alive. Hmm. And he could accept that with no problem whatsoever. He could not accept the end of the universe hmm. because that meant that all the physics he'd done and everyone was going to do afterwards was a waste of time. Yeah. And I think that's such an, uh, it's one of the strangest bits of, because it, it's nothing that's ever worried me, oddly enough. Mm. Me, per, I, I don't, there's, there's a, you know, that lovely story of Patrick Moore once where he gives a lecture and uh, at the end of the lecture, someone says, I'm so sorry, uh, Patrick, I couldn't quite hear. At one point you said that uh, the sun would swell into a red giant, uh, ultimately destroying our solar system. I couldn't hear if it was 4.6 million years or 4.6 billion years. And he said, 4.6 billion. He went, oh, thank heavens for that. And <laughs> it's like, you know, that, that is... <laughs> and, and, and that's, you know, uh, sometimes our strange anxiety pinpoint, which are just totally irrelevant, like the size of the universe. Mm. The size of the universe is an irrelevant problem where yeah. we have to try and make sure that this, this planet remains yeah. as welcoming to life as possible. That's the issue. Don't yeah. worry about the fact that the, the mm. galaxy is enormous and there are more galaxies than there are stars in our galaxy. There's, there's, you know, there's far more parochial issues. But that's, that's the, the, so we, d we don't really understand what, what uh, significance means, the way the, what, you know, what meaning means, if you mm. like. Because it's it, uh, the, the other point about the, the chapter on space travel and you know seeing the, the Earth from a distance is that realization that actually what matters is that we're all on this little spacecraft hurtling through space and that's that's it. Yeah, that's what we've got to look after. And that's what I mean. It's a beautiful thing where a lot of astronauts that I've spoken to think that the Earthrise image taken by Apollo Eight was almost more important than a human being standing on the moon. That bit of 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 moving, you know, and, and looking back at ourselves, and you know, as as I say, that the one of the things that I love about that is that image of the Earth taken from space was not even on the itinerary. In fact, the commander of that particular mission told them not to bother taking a photo, and they the only reason that they saw that image of the Earth was because two of the astronauts, including Jim Lovell, they were a bit disappointed by the moon. <laughs> it was a bit more boring because they, they, they were surveying the moon. They didn't land on the moon. They were surveying it. But they were a bit like, oh, yeah. Now you see it up close. Oh, I was open for a bit more, really. Oh, yeah. And then they look out the window and go, bloody hell, we live there. And that's that moment of then, you know, Jim Lovell goes, here's the colour, you know, camera. Get, get the image. Get the image in colour. And it is, um, and that's what, I mean, that's one of the reasons that I love talking to astronauts is I just find it there. And I think a lot of them, that it's, a, it's a bit like there's a line that I can't remember which book I originally saw it in, but there, there was someone who once said about the Apollo astronauts, the Apollo astronauts landing on the moon didn't change them. It allowed them to be who they were. Yeah. And I think it's the same with the, with the ISS as, as well, and all the people who've been up there, and also Helen Sharman, you know, b b before the ISS as well. You know, that perspective, already I think they're beginning to philosophically think about this fragility of the Earth. 
Mm. But then to, it's, there's a lovely bit where Nicole Stott, who's just written a great book, actually, which I really recommend uh, um, about, again, her being in space and then returning. And, and she does beautiful work mixing kind of art and ideas of space exploration, a lot of them with kids and stuff like that. And um, Nicole Stott, the moment where she started to think when she was on the International Space Station about what a great metaphor it was for the Earth and for its fragility, because you are up there on the ISS and getting the balance exactly right of the water filtration to make sure that you can still drink, that there is still a supply, making sure that the air is so perfectly balanced that you are able to survive. And then thinking of the thinness of the shell of the International Space Station around you, which is protecting you from, you know, you might say, you know, the, 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 the possible barbarism of, of, you know, the space outside. And... So that to me is, you know, and then that, that really, that, that was a thing which underlined what she'd already been thinking about. Mm. You know, this is to be in, in, a, in a fragile model of what life requires and then look down and go, and that too is a fragile model of what life requires. I, I may have got it wrong, but did you say that, uh, you say something about astronauts having no imagination? Or, or uh, It's a thing that J.G. Ballard talked about which I think he was wrong about, and I love J.G. Ballard, hmm. uh, especially when I'm in one of my more dystopian moods. Um, but J.G. Ballard, he felt that there was a, a positive imagination in the Apollo astronauts. He oh, felt they right. were disappointing, and he felt that, you know, he'd even read that some of them don't dream. Now, I think there's, there's various issues there. One of the issues, I think, is the fact that a lot of the astronauts were, were uh, Apollo astronauts, military people, who had to keep that kind of military bearing and keep that, fa that, that look up. So I think sometimes they, they were not that keen on talking about the philosophical ideas that come from Apollo. I think there's another thing that Kevin Fong, who made the brilliant series, if you've not heard it, 13 Minutes to the Moon, oh most yeah. incredible series, he's absolutely he's a genius. And, um, and Kevin said, you also have to realise that some astronauts did not have the extra bandwidth they already have an incredible bandwidth to be able to do what they did. But that extra bandwidth of that imagination of thinking about what it really means to go into space mm. might not have been there. But there are two astronauts, and he, he would point out of the Apollo astronauts, Jim Lovell and Rusty Schweikart, who I talked to in the book, yeah. both of whom, you know, Jim Lovell would describe himself as an explorer. That's what he was. He was, he was an explorer. And Jim Lovell, of course, Apollo 8 and Apollo 13 as well. And Rusty, who was Apollo 9, Rusty prepared himself for going into space by reading these books of philosophy and these great books of literature and listening to classical music. And then he rolled up little scrolls with just lines, little lines from great works of art, because he wanted to take some of humanity into space with him when he went there. Mm -hmm. So he was already, you know, again, he has that kind of, he thought this is much bigger than me, this is much bigger than NASA, this is much bigger than the Apollo mission. This is something of enormity when a, hum when a human being starts to reach out beyond its own planet. And it's mm. what Arthur C. Clarke deals with in his story, The Sentinel. Yeah. Do you think, well, th that kind of brings us on to the, co the consideration of aliens and, you know, uh, why, first of all, why we want to reach out to a life form that may be billions of um, uh, light years away and how we do that and yeah it's, it's an odd question isn't it given what we've just said about well it's, uh, it's an interesting thing isn't it how would it change us psychologically to know that there is other complex curious life mm. and obviously people like Stephen Hawking talked about the idea you know that perhaps we he shouldn't be sending out signals yeah. <laughs> and uh, I think we have to 
Uh, I think that, you know, th there's a bit which I, I, I think one of the interesting things when we talk about the possibility of extraterrestrial life is, you know, you will have these people who uh, will talk about its probability, you know, yay or nay or whatever. I personally instinctually just think it seems preposterous to have that many stars and that many planets and say this is the only one where complex life is going to occur. Mm. The sadness, I think, of the story is that I think the idea that there will be complex life in two different places in the universe which both develop technology at the same time, which allows actually, you know, because most of the, at, at the moment with the technology we have, if we find life somewhere in the distant part of the galaxy, we're not going to be able to have a conversation with it because, you know, we send out the question, then someone receives the answer, then your great-great-grandson picks up and says, oh, I can't even remember what my great-great-granddad asked <laughs> now. But, you know, it's going to take a long time. Yeah. So that bit of the fact that the idea that life, complex life with that level of technology will never coincide time-wise, yeah. I think is an interesting thing. Yeah. But I also think it is, it's an important thing for us to think we are not the only thing. You know, I, I mentioned that story about Frank Drake near the end of the book, Frank Drake who came up with the Drake equation, uh, which is uh, about what we believe a planet requires, its properties for it to have a high likelihood of there being life on it. And the story, I loved it, it's from a beautiful book by Diane Ackerman, who's a wonderful author, called A Slender Thread. And the story she tells in that is Frank Drake uh, who spent most of his professional life contemplating different ideas of extraterrestrial existence and listening out for possible signals of extraterrestrial life. And when he wasn't doing that, the other thing he used to do was he would volunteer for a phone helpline, which was the American equivalent of the Samaritans. And I love that story so much because I think it shows what was Frank Drake. Frank Drake was a listener. He was a listener on many different levels. He was listening out for the possibilities of life, and then when he wasn't doing that, he was listening out for the life that he knew existed, this life that life, human life, that might be in peril, that might be experiencing grief, that might be experiencing, you know, so many different things, senses of melancholy and depression. He listened out for them because mm. he knew they definitely existed. So he was listening out for both the potential and the reality. Mm. And, you know, Seth Shostak, who's now the head of SETI, who I talked to for the book, he said the amazing thing about Frank was he just always had his door open. He yeah, was exactly. always ready to listen to people. And I think that's what we need to try and do we, as, as, as a species, to have grand ambitions. We should never stop having those grand ambitions. But at the same time, always be reaching out for the people as well who are around us to have those two things. And Frank Drake, I think, did that so perfectly. Yeah, and the illustration of that is uh, the chapter about uh, kind of our place in evolution as well. You know, the, our, our inability even to really understand other life forms on this planet, communicate with them. Liam is in the audience somewhere. Um, I'll just do a plug for his book as well. I Mammal, really good. Um, but we know we can't even talk to animals that are very closely related to us, or, you know, albeit that we're 62% yeast or whatever it is. But um, <laughs> That's still yeah. one of my favourite lines, a guy who does tours about uh, um, natural selection and goes around the world, and he says every now and again there'll be a man at the back who suddenly stands up and goes, are you saying I'm related to apes? And he'll say, no, much better than that. I'm saying you're related to yeast. <laughs> uh, I think, you know, that's a... <laughs> yeah. But, but, you know, if, if we're, we're desperate to communicate with people we don't even... People, things we don't even know exist billions of miles away. Um, uh, yeah, and we've got all this life on... Uh, the, that great book about um, octopuses, you know, Other Minds. Oh, yeah, Other Minds, that's yes, a great book, yeah. Yeah, which is, which is by definition, it's, it's, it's an alien life form that's incredibly intelligent, and yet we've got no idea how it thinks or how to communicate with it. And, and you know, to be frank, we can't even communicate with each other yeah. much of the time. 
Yeah, no, it's a really <laughs> languages. It's very hard because Jane Goodall. T- there's a wonderful book by Jane Goodall called Through a Window, mm. in which one of the reasons it's called Through a Window, she said, we as a species must remember that we are seeing our world through one of the windows, through the human window. Yeah. And again, this is part of that idea that you know we are not getting an objective view of the world; we're getting a subjective view of the world. Even you know, if we could just talk about the idea of different color perception and why mm. we see those wavelengths in the way that we see them, and the fact that I will never know, even if you see the blue that I see, and all of those things. And then that objectivity that comes from the fact that we know in some parts of the world there are cultural groups that can see loads of different shades of blue when we only see one form. You know, there's so many different levels. Mm. And Kat Hobater, who I, I wish I'd, I didn't have space to put her in the book. I wish I had because she does really interesting research into chimpanzee language which it turns out the sign language is more and more complex than we imagined it's, it's far more than the kind of you know the single verb that had previously been imagined from certain gestures you know the, um so yeah i find yeah. that 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 to always remember that we're seeing through one window yeah again and it brings back to that idea that so many of the people that i spoke to and people like andrean who you know uh worked a great deal with carl sagan and was the the creative director of the golden record of course also you know yeah. uh was married to carl sagan a beautiful love affair of science and there's the the, the, the story she tells about the pale blue dot you know the pale blue dot picture which was you know taken by voyager where you just see even from the you know again the smallness of our solar system just this tiny tiny image of earth taken by voyager the last fo- photo i think that voyager took and that image arrived carl sagan had to really argue for why again like Earthrise, you know nasa didn't really want it why, why do you why do you want to get a picture of how small the earth looks from that it will give us perspective and it arrived on uh february the 14th on valentine's day so Anne and carl spent valentine's day musing upon this yeah. beautiful picture of the fragile earth um but yeah so so uh and that uh, that that communicates something about the sort of human condition without words and without language doesn't it really mm. um so th- there's a there's a whole kind of uh uh, world of communication that we haven't really got to grips with. So it comes back to the the mind and you know what we're looking for, and whether we can ever communicate with other species and really understand our place. And it and it kind of I think it also ties into the th- the thing uh, again coming to the chapter about about death and ritual and so on, and um, you know why some things appear to be irrational, but we really mm. need them. I was very taken by the Peruvian fire ceremony. Oh, it's such a beautiful thing. I've found that out from uh, Zena Birch, who's a humanist celebrant, who is, yeah. um, and again, she's someone who, one of the reasons that that's where she's gone is mm. because she lost quite a few people when she was young. Mm. And she talked about the fact that when her, when her younger brother died, very suddenly, um, she went to, you know, the, 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 the funeral and the vicar's kind of there going, it's because God loves him so much that he wants him by his side. And that's and she was like, I don't even know who this God is. And we loved him. And why is he not by our side? And, and so she then spent, you know, uh, as she grew up more and more, she wanted to find different ways. Of, there's a beautiful thing. I can't remember if it's, I hope it's still in the book, where she talked about one, one of the things that she did was when a friend of hers had died of cancer. And she thought, oh, I'm just writing things that are angry all the time. I I know I'll write through my anger and then I'll get to the bit that I'm actually going to use for the eulogy. And then she suddenly went, hang on a minute, the anger needs to be there because everyone else in the ceremony as well, everyone else in the funeral, they're going to be angry as well. Mm. So I'm going to start with the anger. And then the the Peruvian ceremony that she talks about, which again, it goes back to the importance of stories, which is 
it's this ceremony where basically when someone has died, that you, you, you build a small bonfire and there's a big stack of logs. And then one by one, the friends and the family, right, someone will go over and they pick up a log and then they stand over the fire and they just tell a story about the person that has died. And they might not even have that, you know, sometimes people d didn't want to, they're just, you know, so emotionally overwrought, they might just say a word or they might just stand there in contemplation and then they put a log on and then the next person goes up and they do. And this just keeps going on and on and on. And of course, what you get is a bigger and bigger fire, a brighter and brighter fire, a hotter and hotter fire, and you have a fire of stories. And that fire is the stories of that person. I think mm. that creates something that is, a, a, is, is, is physical and it feels tangible mm. and it feels, and again, that connection that happens with everyone there. And we're yeah. still not, you know, the, the Callum, who I spoke to for the book, is kind of one of the areas he studies is we are still, you know, especially actually in the UK, we're, we're not good at dealing with death. Death gets sealed up very quickly. Someone mm. gets put in a box and the box gets closed and that's it. And, and he talked about the fact that when he was at his grandmother's funeral, he said to the funeral director, can you just take a couple of photos of me with my grand's coffin? Oh, yes. <laughs> and it was like, he goes, because all the other ceremonies in the church, you know, the weddings and the christings, yeah. you get photos, but funerals, yeah. and he wanted just to just have, up. yeah, yeah, and it was <laughs> that. Let's just have, let's create yeah. another little story there. Yeah. I mean, in my previous book, I talked about the fact that on, on the day that, uh, of my mum's funeral was also the day of the Rose Door Awards, um, which Infinite Monkey Cage was nominated for two awards. And my dad said, oh, you could go to that award ceremony tonight. And I went, oh, no, Dad, don't, you know, it's mum's funeral. I was doing the eulogy at my mum's funeral. And he said, no, I think you should. I think it would be good that you go. And it probably seems like a weird thing. You do your mum's funeral, you do the eulogy there, and then you go to an award ceremony in the British Museum. And then I decided to do it because it felt like the most ridiculous thing to do. And therefore, it created a story. And it was ridiculous. And, it was a, and then I go there, and then we don't win the first category. And I'm like, oh, my God, why, am I, why have I even come here? I'm it's my mum's funeral, and we're also going to leave losers of the prize as well. So I've lost my mum, and we're not even going to win a prize at the end of it either. And then we won, we, we won the second category, and I went down, and, uh, and I just looked at this audience, and I said, it's a bit of a funny old day, this actually, because this is my second uh, public speech. Um, the first was the eulogy at my mum's funeral. And that was a very interesting thing to see different, you know, <laughs> Rhys Shearsmith and Steve Pemberton were in the room. They knew what had happened, so they laughed out loud, you know. And other, other people are going, is this some kind of shtick? I don't know, you know. And it's, but I, I was glad I did it. And also I did it because of other things, like the fact my mum would have loved it that I'd have gone there because she would have, I'd have rung her up afterwards and showed, oh, how did it go? You know, and so yeah. all that thing. And so, you know, creating stories. Mm. Well, I've booked my uh, Peruvian fire ceremony. My my partner um, Laura, who some of you know, has uh, uh, told me quite clearly she wants her body in a body farm. Mm. Oh, uh, body farm stuff is amazing. Yeah. I mean, you know, as you know, I interviewed someone who's starting a body farm in Canada. Yeah. And 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 she again, her relationship to death is in because she just sees the body as the body. She does not see it as the person. Mm. And she said both her mum and dad said yes, I'll be on the boat. Yes, yeah, we definitely donate our bodies. And she went, oh god, I wonder how I feel about that. And she said, for probably for a couple of minutes, I just think. Mm. And then I think, oh, that's brilliant. Look, what look what's growing on my mum. That's a good <laughs> bit of research there. And I find that fascinating. Because I heard, because uh, Laura told me, I think there's, uh, there's the first body farm is going to be established in the UK uh, quite soon. So, you know, book, book early. Um, you know, I imagine it's going to be popular. That's a weird thing to hope you're going to be first, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Yeah, it is. Did um, I win the race? Yeah. Um, I just realised I've got absolutely no sense of time. Has anybody got kind of... Because I'm looking at this Five clock, which nine. is obviously a prop for a play. <laughs> and apparently it's one o'clock in the morning. It was always one o'clock in Tunbridge. <laughs> Sorry, what is, and what then it's five past nine. Five past nine. Okay. Sorry, right. I talked long. No, no, that's My good. Fault. That's good. Um, I wonder, uh, 
do, do we have, um, yeah, I guess we can. Do people want to ask questions? Yes, one. Right, so at this point, obviously, uh, the microphone was not very good for the audience. So uh, instead of having uh, very faint questions that you can't really hear and a lot of buzzing on the uh, extra microphone, uh, here's my question. just going to say can you explain block time well yeah the block universes i can't <laughs> i can't thoroughly explain it because it's not you know as one of the things that i wanted to make sure of in the book was that at no point did i pretend that i understood something by merely paraphrasing a scientist that i spoke to but the block time the block universe which comes out of einstein's kind of ideas i think is again it offers a great consolation which is this idea that time itself is in a block and inside that block and this brings in as, as well the problem where we think of time as going from here to here yeah. and actually the idea that it's just there and then that brings in enormous questions about kind of determinism and you know some scientists say you know the past exists in a block but the future doesn't and then that I find very I find that very difficult to understand because I don't understand the equations how come you can say well the block's there forever but actually then there's a, the future is uh, ah. anyway Faye Dowker is amazing on that she's, she's Faye Dowker does these wonderful lectures where her first fourth year lecture at Imperial College is her talking about Einstein and how some of our expectations of how we believe the universe is we're misled by our own experience so she'll talk about the fact that we think of gravity when we sit on a chair we think we're pressing down on the chair but actually the chair is pushing up on us and it's such a beautiful moment because you see some of the, the students who are so enraptured by what she's saying and at that point they go <laughs> and it's just you know a beautiful thing to watch but um yeah, so the block, yeah, I, I think the reward of the block universe is the fact that every moment of time, every experience that we've had still exists in the block universe. Though there will never be, as far as from the laws of physics, current, there's no way you could actually journey physically into those moments, but those moments exist for eternity, or at least for the, the, the full existence of whatever this universe may be. Mm. And I think that is a tremendous, you know, that can give people a consolation which attaches to itself a certain mythic quality. But it's a very, you know, to me, it's it's the the, the, the predetermined bit is the is the like like the free again free will. I don't really care if free will is an illusion or not. It doesn't matter because you live your life as if you do, mm. and there's no other way of living your life. Mm. You know, when I picked up that Doctor Who annual, you know, there's, it may well have been predetermined that I would think yes, Lucy is a nitwit or whatever it was, <coughs> and yeah. and I'm, I must have that map. But that has always been in my my universe. But it doesn't matter. I, I placed it there. It's merchandising. It's, it's you didn't place it there. There's no, no. free will. <laughs> this is what you see. Yeah, you again have imagined that. No, <laughs> oh, yes, no, no, no. Right. I'm not just saying I haven't got free will. <laughs> yes. It's not your fault you're here. If you think this is longer than I imagined it was going to be and not what I thought it was going to be, you weren't involved in the decision. So. There's <laughs> <laughs> um, one other little question and then we'll, and then we'll stop. Um, you make a couple of references in the book maybe more than a couple, to not having been to a rave. Mm. You say you're not the sort of person who ever went to a rave. No, you I didn't. Ha you haven't got to. No, it's just not my thing. Yeah. I quite like some of the music, yeah. but I can't... There's too many people and too many luminous whistles. Got your little presents. Oh, my goodness. Is this a luminous whistle? Well, it might be. Or it might be an upgrade. Let's find out. Wow. Flashing whistle. It's a flashing whistle, yeah. Because I, I was hoping, now my son's a teenager, obviously I was planning to start going to raves to embarrass <laughs> him more. <laughs> yeah. So thank you. Well, very there you go. Much. You're very welcome. 
Um, uh, so, um, Robin's going to be here to uh, sign some more bo books if you wish. I think the bar's going to be open. Um, so, uh, you can help us out. Thank you. So Did it flash? No, I think you pressed the button. Do I? <laughs> no, you <laughs> This is ruining oh. recording. Right? So def definitely have to switch on, but um, we'll work that out. Well, there's a button there. Yeah. I'll give this to Brian. <laughs> yeah. This has been a very disappointing evening for all of us now. Yeah. <laughs> See, what's it say? This is, uh, don't, don't just says about. toxic. I, and I think, I think uh, what's written on the front is even more, is even better. Just press the whistle to light up. Yeah. And just what, press what the whistle. Yeah. <laughs> the... Uh, <laughs> That's what we'll find at the end of the universe, won't we? That will be yeah. the final message. Choke hazard. <laughs> universe has <laughs> yeah. choke. Great fun and cool in the dark. Exactly. Um, listen, thank you very much. Uh, no, Robin, no, 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 we uh, can't go we until we've got this story. <laughs> <laughs> oh, please, no. <laughs> this is a really dim, really yeah. dim light. Look, you're not going to be communicating with any aliens no. or anything with that. Um, Please join me in thanking. I'm change the nitwit in the book now. Robin, <laughs> thank you. Thanks. I think we're done. Thank you. Oh, so thanks again to Robin Ince for that great evening uh, thanks also to the Oast Theatre for the venue uh, and to Alaric Smith for technical support um, you can buy Robin's book really really easily just by visiting the Mr Books website um, so I hope this year is everything you want it to be and that you keep listening to uh, ideas in writing and you come along to Mr Books bookshop in Tunbridge ideas in writing is produced with the support of Mr Books bookshop in Tunbridge the home of inspiring, imaginative and intelligent books, gifts and conversation. They're on Twitter too, at MrBooks underscore T-O-N for Tunbridge. But most importantly of all, you can visit them in the lovely market town of Tunbridge in Kent for a browse any Wednesday to Saturday, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. And don't forget to subscribe for new episodes coming up because we have started to plan them for 2022 and uh, find out more at the Mr. Books website. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can support us. You just need to click on the link and become an Acast supporter. It's a one-off donation. You can give as much or as little as you like, and uh, there's no commitment. But it certainly helps us to keep producing these podcasts. So thank you very much. Thank you.